cares about us. Matthew 23, starting to read at verse 1. It says, Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, and all therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries, and enlarge the borders of their garments, and love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the markets, and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be ye not called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ and all ye our brethren. I want to preach this morning from this question, who is your master? Who is your master? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful anointing that is here, Lord. And we pray that our worship, Lord, has blessed you and has risen into your throne room, Lord, as a sweet savor. And, Lord, I pray that as we look at your word today, that you would search our hearts, Lord God, that you would speak to us in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. The word master here in the Scripture is in more modern translations usually translated as teacher. And the idea of a teacher or a rabbi in the first century world was not really in line with how we think of teachers today. We think of school teachers and that kind of thing. But really, their concept was more in line with the word master. Um, those who were followers or disciples of a rabbi or a master or a teacher viewed him as their master and did whatever he told them to do. And Jesus taught here that the Pharisees, as teachers, were placing very heavy demands upon their followers or on the people of Israel, why they themselves wouldn't lift a finger. It's not a very uh, flattering reference. It, they, as he mentioned, they had a kind of a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do approach. And they were more interested, the Lord said, in, in their appearance being impressive or in other people being in awe of them and how spiritual and how holy they were. And verses 5 to 7 give us a little bit of insight into this where it says they love the greetings in the marketplace. For somebody to say, oh, Rabbi, so good to see you. Or they go to the feasts and they wanted the, the, the seat of prominence at any function. They wanted to be the guest of honor. And in verse 5 it says that they make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and... That word is not a word, that word phylactery is not something that most of you have been using in words with friends this week. It's an unusual word. It's not one that we're familiar with. And what it is, if you go back to the Old Testament, you see that's where the practice began. And if you, if you Google it, you'll find pictures of Orthodox Jews that still to this day, there were certain scriptures that they would have on paper or on parchment. And they would put those scriptures in a little almost like a little cube-shaped box made out of leather. And uh, the box had a, like a cube and then a little bit wider bit on the bottom. It looked like a miniature top hat almost, except it was square. And then they would strap those things on their foreheads. looks pretty weird. If you Google it, you'll understand what I'm talking about. And 
it tells us here that the Pharisees made theirs a little bigger than everybody else's. They, they were more spiritual. They had these bigger scripture boxes on their foreheads. I'm glad that in the New Testament we don't have to get around with scripture boxes on their foreheads. But such was their desire. They were interested in other people looking at them and being impressed by their spirituality. But it was Jesus that said that you have one master, and that's Jesus Christ. He said, I am your master. When you consider the statement that he was making, it's a statement of his identity, that he was more than just a prophet, that he was more than just a wise man or an anointed man, but that he was God manifest in the flesh. And he said, you only have the one master, was what he told his disciples. And you may not realize it this morning, but we all have a master. We all have a master. We have someone or something whose voice that we listen to, whose direction we take and who impacts our choices. And you might get a bit indignant with me today and say, well, that's not the case. I do what I want. But forgive me if I'm a little direct. If that's your mindset, you're actually deceived. Because you have a master. Whether you call them that or not, there is somebody that is your... Even the Jews were deceived. You know, Jesus, in John chapter 8, Jesus said to them, He said, you shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, we be Abraham's seed, or we're the descendants of Abraham, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, you shall be made free? And Jesus answering them said, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, that whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. So if we are sinners, then sin is our master. But the amazing thing to me about that passage has always been the complete blindness of those people because they said, we're Abraham's children. We've never been anybody's servants. Really? Read the Old Testament. What about Babylon? What about Assyria when they went into captivity? If those people that he was speaking to had have walked out the door and down the street, why is there a Roman soldier on the street corner? Why are they under Roman oppression? But such was their deception. We're not anybody's servant, really. They were under a master that they didn't even recognize was there. And there is a lot of people today that are under a master that don't even recognize that it's there. People came to Jesus throughout the Gospels and addressed him as master. Some of them were very sincere. Some of them recognized that there was something about him that nobody else had. They came and they knew that there was something about this man and they addressed him with reverence and respect. But there were others where it was false. When the rulers would come to him to try to trick him, to try to, the Bible says they wanted to catch him in his words. So they would come and say, oh, master, we know that you're this and we know that you're that. They were flattering him. Beware of flattery, it'll set you up for a fall. Jesus was smarter than them, but I'm not sure we're as smart as Jesus. So beware of flattery. But they came to him and they, they said all these nice things. And then they would say, we know that you don't, you know, one example is in Mark 12 where they said, you don't have any respect for the ways of men and you teach what God wants you to teach. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar? In other words, should we pay our taxes to the Roman Empire? And they're trying to catch him because they, they knew that if he said, no, you shouldn't, 
then he would be breaking the law. But if he said, yes, you should pay your taxes, that the Jews would be upset because they, they like paying tax about as much as you as I, I do. And so they tried to catch him. And we know that because the Lord is so wise, he, gave, he said, give me a coin. And he said, whose picture is this on here? And they said, that's Caesar's. And he said, well, give the things to Caesar that are his and give the things to God, the things that are his. And they were amazed at his ability to just disarm their trap. And he did that in a variety of situations. But they came to him saying, Master, but he was not their master. Nor did they want him to be their master. But they were interested in, in trying to trick him, which was always going to fail when you were trying to trick God manifest in the flesh. And then it gets even more tragic when you get to Mark chapter 14. And you can turn there if you would. Let's read this together. Mark fourteen forty three. very late in the gospel of mark it says and immediately while he yet spake cometh judas one of the twelve and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and he that betrayed him had given them a token he said this is the signal saying whomsoever i shall kiss that same is he take him and lead him away safely and as soon as he was come, he goeth straightway to him and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. And we know that up until, I guess, fairly recently, Jesus was Judas's master. But somewhere along the way, things got into Judas's heart, and his actions spoke a lot more powerfully than his words. And he was no longer a servant of the Lord, but he betrayed the Lord. So our question this morning is, who is your master? We all have one, and the Bible tells us that we can't serve more than one. No man can serve two masters, because you'll either love the one, despise the other, hold to the one, hate the other. There's no way that you can be under two masters. There's going to come a point where one has to be above the other. That's what he was saying. Amen. And there are areas in our lives that we serve, if I can use that word, to a certain point. We invest our time, our resources, and our energy into that are a part of life, and there's nothing wrong with those things. Some examples, this is not a complete list, but some examples are family, friends, finance, and our futures. You can always feel the temperature change in the church when you mention finance. Everybody gets really nervous. But those are things that are a part of life. And what we need to understand about those things is that they are, in a sense, subheadings in our lives and they only work properly if our master is jesus amen even you know even in this life if we get those things around the wrong way it can cause us a lot of heartache give a very easy example if we are so driven by finances and career we can sacrifice our family on the altar of that goal or of that master in service of that master our family can suffer and I've known people that were so driven by what they did in their employment in area of their lives that their families have fallen apart. And that's not the way that the Lord wants it to be. The right way for us to understand these things is that it's not a choice between Jesus and our family, friends, finance, and our future, but it's how they go together and the order of authority that they take in our lives. Amen. It's really the question is, who is the master? of our family, our friends, our finance, 
and our future. And if, I, if you and I will handle these areas of our lives as directed by the Lord, our master, they go a whole lot better. Let me give you some examples. If we approach family from a godly perspective as unto the Lord, your family will be blessed. It's not you discard your family to serve Jesus. That's not biblical. But when I serve him by how I handle my family and how I'm a part of my family, my family will be blessed. When you get that around the wrong way, that's when it gets messy. If I, with my relationships with friends and and companions, if that is handled with the godly approach as well, the Lord will bless that. And I said it recently that you show me your friends, I'll show you your future. But how we interact with friendship can either be godly or God-blessed or the opposite. Finance is pretty obvious. We need, you know, the Lord is not against money. And everybody said, thank you, Jesus. He's not against money. The Bible speaks about money. It speaks about, you know, being responsible, about paying your bills, about being good stewards of the money that we have. The Lord doesn't, it's not a subject that he won't talk about. But when it gets out of balance, the problem is when it is the love of money and when money becomes our master, it tends to destroy it tends to destroy. It's, it's, but it's not a bad thing. God wants us to pay our bills. In fact, the scripture says if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. It doesn't mean if you haven't got a job today, you don't eat until you get a job. Mind you, would be a good inspiration, let me tell you. <laughs> be one way to look for a job. I don't eat until I get a job. You'd be looking hard. It's, but it's talking about as a principle, we need to work. And if we work, we get paid, we get paid, we get to eat. So money, there's nothing wrong with money. Some people think money is evil, money is wicked. No, money's not evil. It's not wicked. It's when money gets its, its claws into human hearts and starts to be their master, that's when it becomes a real problem. And we can be so worried about our futures that we can mess up the present. Oh, I'm worried about this and I'm worried about that and I'm putting aside money for this and I'm doing that. And again... There is a place for that in the scripture. But the principle is lay up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust does corrupt. And we get too invested in this world. You know, if you know anything about the word of the Lord, when you see what the future of this world is going to be, don't invest in that. That's a really bad investment. The returns are not going to be good at all. Amen. But when any of these areas becomes my master, Jesus gets pushed aside. The family is a God-designed and created thing. Adam, Eve, and their kids. Now, they had some family problems. Guess what? We all do. But the family is is a God-ordained, designed thing. But I have seen people put their families above the Lord, and that never ends well. Not just your immediate family, but your extended family. Oh, I don't want to go to church because, you know, my dad or my mom. And I know that all those things are not always easy to work out. But who is your master? Who are we trying to please? The Bible tells us to honor our mother and our father. But there is a, there is a caveat or a condition with that. And it, when, when, when the direction that our natural parents want to push us in goes against that which the Lord wants, who's the master? He's our master. Amen. And then you get people that, you know, you've got to look, at, be very careful on the influence that our friends have in our lives. 
You know, if you, if you don't really understand how important that is, go back to the Old Testament, read the story of Amnon. If you ever listened to Brother Jerry Jones preach that message, Amnon had a friend, you'll understand how powerful friendship can be. It can be really good and it can be really bad. And I'm grateful for good friends. I can't imagine life without good friends. But I've seen people make bad choices with bad friends. Amen. And again, we get so obsessed with our futures and our finances that everything else, Jesus gets pushed aside. So who is your master this morning? And I don't think I'm going to be too long. But your testimony, this is what the Lord really laid upon my heart late last night. Your testimony says a lot about who your master is. Let me say that again. Your testimony says a lot about who your master is. What do I mean by that? My testimony and your testimony, see, we think a testimony is always a good thing. But your testimony is a statement of what's happened in your life. When I testify, I look back at what's happened and I consider the fruit of my life, the things I've trusted in, the choices that I've made, and what has been the fruit of those choices. That's where you see who your master is. If you look back and you see who's driving my life, who is it I'm pleasing? Who is it that's drawing on my energy, my time, my resources? Who, when I have to make choices, when I come to a fork in the road, as it were, and I've got to make a decision, who's my master? Your testimony will tell you who your master is. Amen. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11, it's, uh, the verse is following a passage where it's talking about the devil being the accuser of the brethren. And it says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, we thank the Lord for the power of his blood, and by the word of their testimony. And that's often where we stop. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and we get excited. But the verse doesn't stop there. The last part of the verse says, and they love not their lives unto death. It's not as exciting as the first half of the verse. It sort of takes the happy part out and makes it real serious. But that's what a testimony is. Who am I trusting in? Who am I willing to commit my life to? And if it costs me my life, who am I going to trust? Because you can have a good testimony and you can have a bad testimony. You've heard me say it before, but we can either be a good example or a horrible warning. I know which one I want to be. I want to be a good example by the grace and the mercy. I want to have a testimony that exalts what God has done in my life that doesn't magnify my own foolishness. Now, I know in my testimony, if I look back, there's enough of my foolishness sprinkled through it. But in the midst of that, there's His grace and His mercy and His blood and His power and His provision for my needs. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The value of your testimony. I think this is an important thing if you get nothing else this morning. The value of your testimony is measured by the impact that it has or does not have on your present. Your testimony is only valuable if it's connected to right now. Because if all you've got is history, that's nice for a testimony. But my testimony of my past 
is valuable because it's directly connected to my present. Where's the principle of that found in the Scripture? The Bible tells us about a young shepherd boy whose name was David. Youngest of the family, not even worth looking at as far as his father was concerned. When it came time to choose one of the boys to be the king, Jesse got all the sons in, didn't even bother calling David in from the paddock. Finally, we know the story. He came in. The prophet got the nudge from God. This is my guy. They anointed David, and he was going to be the king. What does David do? Takes over the throne, gives himself a really big salary. No, he goes back to looking after the sheep. And then in time, his dad sends for him, and he says, you know, we're at war. All your older brothers, the ones I thought were the real deal, they're in the army. I want you to take some cheese and some bread Go and give that to them and bring back a report. How are things going? And if you know the story, David gets there and the whole nation of Israel is hiding behind every rock they can find and every crevice and every tree because there's one man, one big ugly giant, who's standing on the other side of the valley and he's saying, give me someone to fight with. And if I win, you serve us. If you win, we serve you which was never really going to happen. What it meant was we're all going to get our heads chopped off. But all of these seasoned soldiers, or at least some of them would have been seasoned, were hiding in fear. And a young man who didn't know any better came into the camp and sort of said, well, what's going on? What's the situation? What's the story? And he heard this, about this giant's challenge. I don't know if he actually heard it or they just repeated it to him. But he basically said, I'll fight him. I'll fight him. And his brothers were like, what are you doing here? You're trying to cause trouble? And eventually the word got back to the king because the king was desperate. It wasn't like he had a line of volunteers saying, let me do it. It wasn't all these great, muscly, battle-scarred warriors saying, King Saul, I'll take that one kid. He probably still cuts himself shaving. He's just a young man. And he says, I'll, and the king's looking around. There's not a lot of other options going on. And he's like, well... We don't have a plan B. We didn't have a plan A until today. And David says, but the thing, David's statement is what is powerful. He said, the Lord kept me when the lion came against the flock and the bear came. See, that was his testimony. He said, when I look back, I've got a victory. I've got another victory. And although he's not a bear, He's not a lion, but it's the same principle. And he took his testimony. that ha- It doesn't tell us how long ago it was. It might have been a year. It might have been five years. But he took his testimony from his past, and he dragged it into his present. And he said, what kept me then will keep me now. Is it bigger? Yes. Is it uglier? Yes. Did the bear and the lion have a sword and a spear? No, they didn't. But he said, the same God that kept me through that, will keep me through this. Amen. And that's the value of your testimony. It's something that you reach back to and you pull into the present and you stand upon that history and claim the promise that right now you might not be able to see. But that's where you find out who your master is. You see, the purpose of my past in Jesus is to assure me in my present. That's what the past is for. So I can look back and say, this is what God has done. Therefore, even though I can't see it, 
and I don't have an answer, he's going to kick me in the right now. And then when David beat Goliath and the next day started, he had another layer on his testimony. He had another chapter in his story that he could reach back to and pull into his present. And when you read the rest of his life and the battles that he fought with his mighty men, there's quite a few giants along the way. And they just took him out because David had a testimony. We all have a testimony. Who your master is determines the quality of your testimony. If you look back down the, the corridor of your life and you can see yourself serving sin and serving self and serving finances above God or serving a career above God or putting your family above God, your testimony is not going to do a lot for you in the present. But if you look back and say, because I trusted him, then he did this, then he did that. Then he did it. That means that right now, he can keep me again. And whatever you might be going through at the moment, whether it's good or bad or in between, the question is, who is your master? And what will your testimony be tomorrow? Tomorrow's testimony is being written today. Whatever battle you're in, the choices you make today are writing the words of tomorrow's testimony. And whether it's a week or a month or six months or a year, at some point you'll be able to stand up and say, when I look back at May the 28th, I think it is today, 2017, I was in the midst of a hole that was so deep I didn't seem to be able to climb out. But God, who is faithful, reached down into my situation and he pulled me out. And that's my testimony. Or we can give up, put our trust in the flesh, try to work it out ourselves, invest everything that we have in those other areas of life, trying to find something to hang on to, and your testimony will be a whole different story. And you might say, well, Pastor, but when I look at my life, I don't have any lion and bear experiences in the past. I've made a lot of bad decisions, or maybe I've just started to walk with the Lord. You're writing your own story today. You, and if your story in your past has been a, a liturgy of bad choices, start a new story today. Turn the book and make a clean page. Say, my testimony today in my present. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Sister Emma mentioned a scripture in Luke chapter 14 where Jesus said, quoting from Isaiah the 61st chapter, I believe it was, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and to the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. There's a whole list of things the Lord said there that he came to do, that he came to minister. And here's a question about who your master is. If you've got any of those issues, if you go to the master you've got now, can he minister to those needs? If you're bruised, if you're hurt, if you're heartbroken, can your master heal you? My master can. But if you go back to that master and actually find out, hey, this is where a lot of that stuff came from, it might be time for a change of leadership. Now, we were, we were traveling a couple of years ago, going to general conference, I think it was, and we got to the airport and we checked in and I was flying all the time, so a lot of that was second nature, but I was a little distracted and 
we got our boarding passes and not, for reasons I still can't explain, rather than take our bags and put them on the conveyor belt, I headed off for security, pulling my bag behind me. And my wife and my kids were like, what's he doing? <laughs> and Matthew said, I think it's time for a change of leadership. And Because <laughs> I, I was like, oh, what am I doing with this? And <laughs> we need to examine what our master is doing. That wasn't the master of the house, but it's an example of if somebody's going the wrong way, don't follow them. If the path that your master's walking down leads to destruction and addiction and bondage and heartache, why would you follow them? When I read Luke and I see the things that Jesus said, these are the things I came to do. I want to go to him and say, God, I've got bruises. I've got a broken heart. I'm bound by some things. I'm a captive. I'm hurt, etc., etc. And my master can heal me. He can lift me up. He can make me whole. He can strengthen me for the journey. And if the thing that is the master in your life can't do that, you're following the dud. You know, it's like supporters that cheer for a team that never wins. Like New South Wales, brother Munna. Sorry, state origin next week. Got to get in while I can. But it's like... Why would you be, you know, you get fans. And I understand the commitment, but, you know, we've been backing our team. They haven't won the league for 125 years. It's like, it might be time to change. But no, my dad went for them and my grandfather and my great-grandfather. So they're all losers. Wonderful. Pick a winner. Choose a team that wins. Loyalty to a dead-end street is foolish. Why would you go down a pathway and say, well, I'm sticking with it? What is the point? What is going on in our heads? Choose a master that's worth following. Choose a team that's worth barracking for. And the Lord is going to be the winner. That's what the Scripture says. You know, if, you, if your master is sin, if your master is this world, see what happens when you take your hurt and your heartache to that master. See how that goes for you. See if there's healing there. You might get distraction. You might get temporary distraction. But you'll get no resolution. You'll get no outcome that's going to make you... In fact, you'll end up worse than you were when you started. But if I will take the pen, as it were, of my life, I'm going to say, I'm changing my leadership. I'm going to select the master that can lead me into an eternity in his presence that can take me somewhere whose promises don't change. Not only that, when I fail him, he spoke to us through the gifts this morning, when I fail him, he reaches down and he'll pick me up again and again and again and again. So much so that it is hard for us to comprehend. Why does he continue to forgive me? Why, when I let him down, does he still reach for me and extend grace and mercy? Why? Because he's not like us. But sin, you'll get none of that from sin. When you fall, it sinks the boot in. Kicks. It drags. It condemns. And you go further and further. But a lot of people don't even realize that that's their master. I want to encourage somebody this morning. If you're going through something and there are decisions you need to make in your life and you're at a fork in the road, as it were, choose Jesus. Trust him. Your testimony is going to be a better story. 
1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, and I'm going to finish with this. Cass, if you want to come to the piano, please. Many of us know this scripture. It says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. Now, we read that scripture, but we... We are sometimes, I think, guilty of, of the, the distance between the temptation and the escape is just a second. Oops, there's a temptation. I got an escape. The escape comes when you're at the point where you can't take it anymore. Jesus, and this is hard for us to get, but God is more interested in bringing you through than bringing you out. Because if he brings you through and you come out of that situation... And you're refreshed in the Holy Ghost and restored, strengthened, renewed, healed, delivered, whatever it may be. There's a fresh page in your testimony. And it says, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. When my heart was overwhelmed, I said, lead me to a rock that is higher than I. Though I fall, I shall rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be my light. Though he slay me, I'll trust him. What's your testimony going to be this morning? Stand with me if you would. Who is your master this morning? And there are things required of us if we want Jesus to be our master. There are. It's not just all, you know, fun and giggles. There is a cost. There's a price to be paid. But he said, my yoke, or my, get it around the wrong way, but my burden is easy, my yoke is light, whichever way around that goes. He said, the things that I'll lay on you, they're only going to be for your benefit, for your blessing, for your good. The things this world will lay on you. There are testimonies in this room that if it was my business, I'd share this morning. There are people I can point to in here today, and I can say they used to have this addiction. They used to have that bondage. Their heart was crushed. They were bruised in their spirit. But the same God that spoke in Luke that said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's not here physically, but the same spirit is. And if you will make him your master, you will never regret that choice.